Church, God is glorified as we bring to him our needs. So if you would bow your heads with me again as we pray and present our request to God. Almighty God, we do continue in prayer and we come to you now and we ask for your work in us, in your church. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ. And in showing us Christ, we ask that you would conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd be at work in our congregation. Father, we pray today for the Bachelor family, and we thank you for the safe birth of Duke. Father, we pray that you would protect Duke's life and his health as he grows. Father, we pray that Duke would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use Duke for your glory. Father, we pray for Caleb and Leah as they dedicate themselves to faithfully raising Duke along with Jane and Beau. Father, may they raise him in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Father, may they parent faithfully with abounding grace and unwavering truth. Father, even as we pray for this new baby, we are reminded of many unborn children in our country who are being killed even before birth. Father, as a church, we pray that you would bring an end to abortion in our land. Father, we pray for those who have committed this sin, that they would run to Christ and find grace in Christ. Father, we pray for you to give us wisdom as Christians, how we should speak and how we should act in this world. Father, today as a church, we also want to pray for the Martinez family as they return this week to Cusco, Peru. Father, as they travel tomorrow, give them safe travels. We pray that you would fill Joe and Janie and Christian and Micah and Eliana with all joy as they return to the place of ministry that you have given them. Father, we pray for their church, for, for Grace Christian Church in Peru. Father, may that church grow into Christ and thus grow in holiness. Father, we pray for our brother Eddie Alfonso, even now as he preaches, that he would be faithful in your word. We pray that as he teaches from Leviticus and shows the gospel, that it would be clear in Peru to this morning. Father, we pray for more elders in this church. We pray that you'd raise up leaders there. Father, we pray for more support and more monthly donors for the Martinez family as they return. Father, we also pray for Vlad and Phoebe. Protect them this week. Give them fruitful ministry this week, we pray. Lord, as we now in this room go to your word, I pray that you would work in us. Father, would you show us Christ more clearly? Would you remind us of what Christ has done? Would you lead us to follow him more faithfully? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I remember sitting in a cafe in a small town in Jordan on the border of Saudi Arabia. Uh, my friend, who I'll just call David for this story, had been studying with me through the scriptures, the storyline of the Bible. And we had been seeing how all of the Bible is actually one unified story. 
finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. Now, David, my friend, was a Muslim, and he was, uh, to my surprise and joy, increasingly interested in this story and in this person of Jesus Christ. So that day, as we sat in those plastic chairs in that, in that cafe, and as we, as we drank our, our tea with mint, with our Bibles just discreetly tucked beside us, Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, was becoming real for David. And the lights were, were turning on in his mind about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And I remember, to my shock, that he was admitting, considering following Christ. Now, importantly, David had a very good life. He had a good job. He was working at a, a public utilities company in the city. He, he made a good salary. He was kind, he was gracious, he was a respectable Muslim man. His wife loved him, they had a good marriage. His, his only son was in private elementary school. His name literally meant handsome, and he was indeed the treasure of their family. And all of this became clear to David as he started looking at who Christ was. That night I wrote these words in my journal as I reflected on what he said. He said, but Jeff, if I were to follow this belief, they would take my family, my wife, my son, my parents, my whole life would be flipped upside down. I know this is a especially sensitive subject for me. This is incredibly sensitive, especially because, and then he gave me the name of his son who would be at risk if he chose to follow what he was hearing that day from scripture. See, David was staring self-denial in the face. It was, a, it, it was a living illustration for me that day that just was etched in my mind of the cost and of the choice to follow Jesus Christ and that it would require from him everything. Everything had to be put on the table if he was going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He did not have the option to separate Jesus Christ as Savior and Jesus Christ as his Lord. Christ must be either both of those or neither of those. Now, why do I tell you this story? Well, what clicked for David that day, who Jesus is, what Jesus came for, and what that would then require of him, who just is, what Jesus came for, what that would require of him, was is really the direction that we're headed this morning in the text. I wonder if this has ever clicked for you in the same way. I wonder if you see these things related. Regardless, I hope you'll be helped by seeing them this morning. If you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We've been working through the book of Luke. Today we're in verses 18 through 27. It'll help you just to have your Bibles open in front of you each week. Uh, to allow you to interact with God's word for yourself, to, to make sure that what I'm saying is, is what the Bible is saying here in the text, so you can see it for yourself. Jesus is again here teaching his disciples, and his teaching, I, I believe, is building on itself in, in the text today through three different points, kind of each building on one another. So we're going to see a, a question that leads to Christ's identity how his identity leads to sacrifice, and now, then how his sacrifice leads to our response. 
So identity, sacrifice, response. That's the direction we're going today. Look at verse 18 and following. Warren just read this for us. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So, number one, what is the question that leads to Christ's identity? Well, well, the question is who? Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, this question is actually not new for us here in the study of Luke. If you've been following with us since, really, November, when we started back in Luke 1.1, this question has, has come up time and again for Luke as he's writing to Theophilus. And here it culminates with this question directly put to the disciples. So if you think back with me, think of maybe chapter five when Jesus was healing the paralytic. Do you remember he forgives the paralytic's sin? And the scribes and the the Pharisees began to question Jesus. And what did they say? They said, who is this that speaks these blasphemies? Or in chapter 7, John the Baptist sends these representatives to find out what? To find out who Jesus is. Are you the one that is to come? Or shall I look for another? Or when Jesus meets that, that sinful woman in the house, and, and Simon the Pharisee was there, those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Or even... Last chapter, back in chapter 8, do you remember Jesus was in the storm and he was there in the sea and he he calms the water and the the disciples just stand there dripping wet and they start marveling. And what do they ask? They say, who then is this who commands the sea, the winds and the waves and they obey him? Even last week we saw this with Herod. It reached the palace. He says in verse 9, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? You see, this question has been really what's been driving this entire first section of the book of Luke, which are coming to a close here in chapter 9, and that is the question of who is Jesus? Who is he? And time and time again, we are learning about that from what Jesus does and says. And so now the question comes to a point. Jesus raises the question himself, and he asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and the disciples' answers are just like Herod's last week. They are incomplete, but pretty accurate, actually, more accurate than they might realize. And then Jesus, at this point, grabs the question, and, and he puts a finer point on it. He, he, he sharpens the tip of the scalpel, and he cuts right to the heart. Notice verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this with the emphatic in the original. The you is is underlined as if to say you, specifically you. So, okay, the the crowds and the Roman governor, they have their thoughts. The the wind and the seas, they seem to obey. The, The demons, they profess knowing this. I'm now asking you. I'm asking you, who do you say 
I am. Friends, here we have pressed personally to ourselves to ask ourselves as well, what about Jesus? We've seen the teachings and the miracles and they, they force this question, but if we're gonna be intellectually honest with ourselves, seeing his claims and what he's done, what he says about who he is, we must realize this is a man that divides history. And that division is centered on what you say about him. Who is Jesus? I wonder, what do you really think about this man? What do you really think about this man? You've probably, I'm just guessing, most of you in this room have been in church just countless of times, countless times. You've heard a lot about Jesus, most of you, I'm just guessing. But just pause for a minute and think, what do you say about this man? What do you really think he was? Who do you really think he was? I've often heard people talk about this idea of, of following Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and, and I've often thought to myself, it, it just it bristles me a little bit. Jesus is so much more than your personal Lord and Savior. He's so much more than your personal butler. Oh, but friends, he will not be less than your personal Lord and Savior. He will be so much more, yes, but he will not be less. You must answer for yourselves, who is this man? Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples. You see it there in the text. He, 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 he speaks up and he says, the Christ of God. Now, the angels had already identified Jesus as the Christ back in, in Luke 2. And, and if you remember, the demons already knew that he was the Christ in Luke 4, 41. And now, this is the first time we see any of the disciples acknowledging this aspect of who he was. Peter says he is the Christ of God. So Christ here is just the word for Messiah. And the Christ means there's, there's no other. And the Christ of God means that this Messiah, this one, the Messiah, has come from God. Oh, this is so pregnant with meaning if we read this in light of this whole book. This is the one that God's people had always been waiting for. For centuries upon centuries, it was this Messiah that they were waiting. It was this snake crusher, this, this son of David, the heir to the throne, the, the promised one, the lion of Judah, the prophet like Moses, the one whom Daniel had prophesied was like a son of man who was given everlasting dominion. The hope of, of Israel, the hope of God's people. This is the Messiah. And so here finally, the disciples confess it. They say, we see it. This confession, this confession here just pivots the book, quite honestly. This, this chapter, it may, maybe you can put it right at this verse. Certainly in this chapter, the, the book of Luke pivots on itself and turns. Up till now, the question has been, let's, who is Jesus? Who is this man revealing himself to be? And now they look and they say, there he is. I wonder, have you said that? Have you said, there he is? This is the one. This is the culmination of humanity's hopes and needs. The Messiah of God. 
This is how this question leads to Christ's identity, but consider also how his identity then leads to his sacrifice. So what does it mean for Jesus that he is the Christ of God? Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now pause, this this should catch our attention here. Strangely, Jesus strongly commands silence. Notice he's charged them, which is is ordering them. He's strictly charged them, and he's commanded them. This is just strong language. Don't tell anyone. Tell no one. Why is he doing this? What's going on here? Why would Jesus want his disciples to wait? In fact, last week we saw Jesus is sending his disciples out, is he not? Telling them to declare the kingdom. But now that they, they touch on this idea of him being the Christ, the Messiah, well, now they're to be quiet they're to wait. What is it about being the Messiah, the Christ, that they must now wait for? Well, the key to this question comes in the next verse. Look at verse 21 again. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here's the idea. Jesus must reshape their understanding of the Christ, of the Messiah. Coming, coming as a Messiah was, was fundamentally seen as a, a political success. Here's this man with all this power. He can clearly provide for God's people. Here he is. But Jesus needed to teach them again. He needed to teach them that this was not a position to overthrow any earthly kingdom. This was not a return of Israel to what the Jews expected it to be. No, he was reshaping their understanding for what they should expect of the Christ of God. Same is true for us, by the way. Jesus is coming is not fundamentally about our prosperity in this world as an individual, as a people, even as a nation. It's, it's not fundamentally about setting up a kingdom of this world, he told Pilate. Oh no, he has coming to bring reconciliation. This is what we see next. Coming as a Messiah meant a substitutionary death. This is fundamental of what it means to be Messiah. This is the, the story of the suffering servant, the, the story that Joe started our, our service with when he read from Isaiah 53. For the disciples to, to go out and, and spread the news of a Messiah without first understanding clearly what he was here to do, that would be like sending out emissaries without really understanding who you're representing. So if they're to speak about him as the Christ, the Messiah, They need to pause and understand this better. As one theologian wrote, you cannot understand Christ until you understand his cross. So Jesus' work as a Messiah is cross-shaped. It's cruciform. Notice verse 22. He says, he must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised. He must do this. Literally, it is necessary. Oh, this is just so beautiful. We could meditate just for the rest of the service on just this one word. The beauty of how Christ as the Messiah must walk through the cross and be raised. 
See, God is holy and just. He, he hates evil with every fiber of his being. It's who he is. And yet, as a perfect judge, he is also just filled with loving kindness and mercy. In order to show that to his people, there is no other way. This is what he must do. He must suffer, be rejected, die, and be raised. Sin must be punished in order for God to remain perfectly good and yet perfectly merciful. To perfectly hate evil, it must be punished fully. And yet to show us his great love and mercy, he must be the one to suffer. Jesus must die. He must conquer death. He must, he must redeem us. He must cover our sin. He must take the place, our place as our substitute. He must reveal to us the depths of Christ's loves, love. The road to glory runs through the cross, as one author writes. Church, just as, as First Boynton, let me just remind you, this idea that I'm just pausing on here and, and thinking about the necessity of Christ's death for us. This is why we practice the Lord's Supper regularly. So just in a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to finish the sermon, we're going to sing, and then we're all going to come forward, we're going to take uh, the bread and the cup together, go back to our seats, and we're going to eat the bread and the cup. And it's not something mystical, as if that's saving us uh, by the mere physical act of what we're doing, but rather it is a, a visual demonstration and regular reminder to us that we need reconciliation that can only come through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It's at the center of what forms a church and what brings us together is the cross. And as we see here in the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, Jesus must die. This is what his true identity required. Who is he? He's the Christ. Who is the Christ? The Christ is the one that will suffer, be rejected by the Sanhedrin, die, and be raised. Well, there's a natural overflow of this. And as I mentioned, here's really where the book of Luke pivots. And then again, later in this chapter, you see Jesus is about to turn his face and is about to head towards Jerusalem. Most of the second half of the book of Luke is Jesus making this trip towards Jerusalem, towards his death. And so Luke, with Jesus, turns his focus here in the book. And instead of focusing merely on the revelation of Christ's identity, who he is, he turns much of his discussion on what this means for us, his disciples, instructions for us. And so this next, chap- this next section of the book of Luke, it's going to take us from ch- at the end of chapter 9 all the way up until chapter 19. And this same pivot is seen here in today's text in a microcosm. Consider number three, how his sacrifice leads to our response. How his sacrifice leads to our response. See, here's, here's the basic idea. If you want to get your, your Christian life just put in a nutshell, here it is. Christ's death shapes your life. That's the Christian life. Christ's death shapes your life. We've just seen that Christ's own identity is shaped by his death. Friends, not only is Christ's identity shaped by his death, his death your identity is too. It should be completely shaped by his death. 
Look at verse 23. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father and of the angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. How does Christ's sacrifice shape your response? How does it shape our response? Well, the answer is everything. The, the, the answer is just radical reorientation of all of who we are, all of who you are. It sh- reshapes it all. Notice how the, the text unfolds. It shapes what you give up, what, who you please, and what you look to. So what you give up. So the, the, the Roman idea of a cross and Jesus refers to here, was, was not just a prolonged torture. It was ultimately sub, 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 ooh, subjugation, is the word I want to say. It is, it is surrender. It is putting someone under the rule of Rome. So a man who was consigned to die, the, the, Romans, the Romans would not just kill him as a criminal or as a treasonous man, but they would begin this long death by giving him this, this heavy beam that the criminal was then to, to carry all the way to the place of his execution. And the picture was that for the criminal or for this, this traitor, that they were no longer in charge of themselves, that they were carrying their cross to their death. It was humiliation. It was a consignment to defeat. Rome had won. Self-will uh, of this person was no longer. It was put to death. Picking up your cross meant you're you're being executed and it was a picture of this this tangible this visceral picture of of surrender of the end of that person you pick up your, the beam and you go to the place that you are to die so if you can imagine that carrying your cross to your death well th- that was a one way walk no one ever comes back from that you don't carry your, your cross once and then go somewhere else. It was, it was a one-way road to your death, to the end of yourself. And friends, this is what Christ demands of us. He demands that you give up everything. Complete self-denial. Execution, as it were. Execution of your self-will. Complete surrender. And he, he demands this daily, the text says. So Christians who are here, you know, there is no sin in your life that, that you could not conquer if you denied yourself for Christ. Have you thought about that? Any, of, any besetting sin, anything you're struggling with in your life, there's nothing in your life that you couldn't conquer if in Christ you deny yourself for Christ. This is the power of Christ in you. Put it another way, this week you will sin. You will sin this week. And you will sin because you don't want to tell yourself no for Christ. Because you want what you want, not what Christ wants. Because you don't want to deny yourself 
and so you will sin. But this week, you can also choose to not sin by denying yourself in that area for Christ. And you must do this. You must do this daily. Listen to what John Stott writes about this. He says, there must be a renunciation of self. In order to follow Christ, we must not only forsake isolated sins, but renounce the very principle of self-will, which lies at the root of every act of sin. To follow Christ is to surrender to him the rights over our own lives. It's to abdicate the throne of our heart and do homage to him as our king. So perhaps discuss this with a friend today, maybe over lunch, maybe a discipling relationship you have. Ask this question, what is one area in your life where you could better deny yourself for Christ? One area in your life specifically where you could better deny yourself for Christ. What is one area where you need to renounce your self-will? Now, I wonder if you can picture this road. So you're walking to the place of execution, carrying your cross, headed on this this one-way path that you will not come back from, giving up whatever rights, whatever life lay behind you, this is the end. Can you picture it? What Jesus says, though, is that there's a paradox in his road. Because at the end of the road is a crucifixion that awaits you. It's a death of sorts, but it's actually life. It's not just death. Beyond that is life. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Death to yourself means a resurrected new life in Christ. True life begins here. Friends, don't you see this is the pattern of Christ? Death followed by resurrection. It's the path he walked. Death first, followed by resurrection. And so with us, we die with Christ. You deny yourself, you take up your cross daily. Ultimately, one day you will die. And if you do this in Christ, you save yourself. You find yourself in him. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Alka Indians. He and his his team were frequently criticized for going to an indigenous tribe that was violently antagonistic towards outsiders. Now, Jim's team was incredibly careful how they went about it, but they still went. They went to this tribe, and and what he did essentially was he, he put his life on a scale, and on the one side was death for Christ, the other side was life for himself, right? Uh, eternal life with Christ or, or gaining the world for himself. And Christ won. That side won for him. And so uh, what he did was he eventually, essentially summarized verse 24. Listen to what he said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, Jim Elliot was speared to death bringing the gospel to that remote tribe. When his heart stopped beating on that beach, he had already gained what he could not lose. So you could, though, alternatively, verse 25, try to gain the whole world. 
You can try to gain the whole world. Quite honestly, I'm guessing most of us, are, in some way, all of us do this. Do we not? All of us, quite naturally, every one of us, reverts back to this pursuit. The pursuit of gaining in our world for ourselves in our life. I wonder where you're tempted to prioritize gain in this world wrongly. If you, if you could just put a finger on that, it's going to just be so helpful for you in your spiritual growth. What is it that you're tempted to prioritize over Christ? The gaining of this world. Perhaps it's a bigger house. Perhaps it's more upgrades to your house. Perhaps it's a better car, a better job, a reputation, perhaps a promotion. I, I don't know. You name it for yourself. Perhaps it's more respect or more respect for your place in ministry. Perhaps it's, it's more followers online or, or people think more, better of you online. What, whatever it is, put a finger on where in this world are you tempted to pursue gain in this world? Jesus says, what, what does it profit if you gain this whole world? If you have it all? What if you're successful? What if you have every wish that you could possibly imagine in your life? now, in this world, and you lose yourself. What does that profit a man? Lewis writes it this way. He says, give up yourself, you'll find your real self. Lose your life, you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. You see, Christ's death shapes our lives. It shapes who we please, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and, my, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. You see, when you see this, this transforming identity of Jesus Christ, it, his work on the cross, it shapes what you're proud of what you're ashamed of, who you're wanting to please. And if it doesn't, perhaps you've never been transformed by him. If you're ashamed of him, perhaps you've never really met him. It's a warning sign, Jesus says. If, you, if you've really met him, there is no shame. <laughs> he is your glory. There, there's no shame for you in him. How do you need to deny yourself with this today? How, how do you need to kill fear of man with others today to be proud of Christ? Perhaps letting yourself die daily means being willing to speak to a coworker about Christ. Or perhaps it means inviting a neighbor to church. Or perhaps it means uh, finding someone after the service that you don't know at church and just inviting your, introducing yourself and getting to know them. Putting fear of man to death not being ashamed of Christ in this world. Do you find yourself apologetic of being a Christian? Just in the back of your mind, just kind of hoping it doesn't come up. His sacrifice also shapes our response in what we await. Notice in verse 26, Jesus again calls himself the Son of Man. Now this is an eschatological title for this future returning king who comes with dominion from Daniel 7. Jesus here points his disciples to, to bring to mind 
when you're thinking through this fear of man, when you're thinking through what you will be ashamed of and what you will center yourself on, to bring to mind the final day, the day that he comes back in glory. What will you be ashamed of on that day? I mean, just think about it right now. Let's just say Jesus comes back before I even finish this sermon. Will you, you, you don't want to be ashamed of him at that moment. You want to be, you want to be like, hey, it's me. Don't, don't forget me. I, I'm proud to, to go with you, son of man. I, I'm proud to be yours. Jesus says, look to that day to kill fear of man. Look to that day and don't be ashamed. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine Jesus Christ coming back? with his glory and the glory of the Father and just the holy angels thrown in there too. Glory and power revealed, unmistakably seen for the whole world. The, the, the kingdom, his kingdom is, is no, will no longer be primarily invisible and, and internal. But in that day, it will be worldwide. It will be obviously visible. And at the center of that, will be him in his glory, unveiled. Look to that day, kill fear of man. True disciples look to that day. In fact, that seems to be Jesus' train of thought with this last verse, verse 27. I, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, this might sound confusing. Is Jesus thinking his disciples will somehow live to the end of time? I, I, I don't think so. In fact, if you notice, he acknowledges that these disciples will die. They will not taste death until they see. So there is this, this death that they will have. He's clearly not thinking to live forever. But no, they'll see something before they die. They'll, they'll taste something before they taste death. What is this sight of the kingdom that Jesus says some of them will get to see? It's like his, his suggesting some of you are going to get a preview of what's coming. That, that everyone else is waiting for, I'm going to give some of you a preview. Uh, perhaps two possibilities. Maybe it's both of them. One possibility, maybe Jesus is talking about his resurrection. Some of the disciples, that is not Judas, will, will get to see Jesus in his glorified body. They'll, they'll see this, this visible preview of the kingdom. They'll see it themselves. They'll see the glorified son of man. Or, or perhaps, and I think I lean this direction, perhaps he's talking about what we'll study next week, the transfiguration. Three disciples are about to get a taste, a preview of the final day, the rule of Jesus Christ in power and glory as Jesus is transfigured before them. And Jesus here just spoke of his future glory and the glory of the Father, and he's about to give a taste of this to Peter and John and James, just to, to etch it in their minds. Regardless, the point is that there will be a, a preview to the coming main event, to when Jesus comes back in power and glory for his church. Jesus is coming back. Have you forgotten that this week? He is coming back, and he will come with power and glory. His disciples have to wait. They will die now. Oh, but they await a future glory. As one friend of mine likes to say, first suffering and then glory. 
First suffering, then glory. Church, we follow the same beautiful pattern of our Savior, who first suffered and died, and then was resurrected to glory. We first suffer, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we ultimately die, and then we meet glory. As Leon Morris put it, a cross for him means a cross for you too. So glory for him means glory for you too if you are in Christ. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, my conversation with my Muslim friend David back in Jordan uh, had started to come to close, to close at the end of the day. Uh, a soccer match had started up at the cafe that we were in, and the, the TVs were turning on. It was time to go home. Uh, he was reflecting as we, as we were talking there at the end of the conversation on just all that he could lose, like all that he could lose immediately if he made this choice to follow Christ. And, and honestly, he was right. But, but then we reflected on all that he could gain if he followed Christ. Sitting in that cafe, we stopped, and, and we actually studied this story that Jesus tells of the treasure hidden in the field. Maybe you know the story. A man goes and he finds a treasure hidden in the field and he, he covers it back up. And then the text says, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. In, in just joy, he just liquidates all of his ac- assets. He just sells it all off, get rid of it as fast as I can. Sell it so that he can buy that field. Complete loss, complete liquidation of everything he owns equals pure joy if he gets the treasure. And to my friend David, I said, David, Jesus is that treasure. The paradox of the road to death is that this road actually brings life. You get Jesus. That week, David became a Christian. He joined an underground church in the Middle East. Our brother looked hard at everything this world has to offer. And he said that he'd rather give it up if he could just get Jesus. I wonder if you will take up your cross this week. This response comes from seeing his sacrifice. Seeing his sacrifice comes from his true identity as the Christ. So, church, look to Christ this week. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we need your help so desperately. It is so easy to pursue gain in worldly terms. All of us are guilty of this. And many of us have trouble even seeing it. Open our eyes, I pray, to how we are tempted to chase after lesser things. Help us, O God, to deny ourselves, to come after you, to take up our cross and to follow you. Help us, O God, to look to that final day and glory in Jesus Christ. We praise in the name of Christ. Amen.